It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Pittsburgh City Council has voted to make inclusionary zoning a permanent part of Lawrenceville. What could this mean for creating affordable housing in other city neighborhoods? With us is Diamante Walker. She's the Deputy Executive Director of the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Pittsburgh. Welcome back to The Confluence. Thank you for having me. Diamante, what exactly is inclusionary zoning? Essentially, inclusionary zoning uh, is an ordinance that ensures neighborhoods can offer new housing units at a variety of price points. And we do this by tying the construction of affordable housing to that of the market rate housing. Uh, We believe that driving affordable housing investment into high opportunity areas is one way to advance fair housing outcomes for families here in Pittsburgh. This was a two-year pilot program in Lawrenceville before it was made permanent. Do you consider the pilot program a success, and if so, why? I do consider the pilot program a success, and one of the measures of success, I would say, is that when you look at the community response and the response that you know we've gotten from our advocacy community, it feels like we're moving in the right direction. Um, I think, you know, I've said a couple of times that inclusionary zoning is not a panacea or a silver bullet, but it is a very important tool within the toolkit to preserve affordability here in the city. And I think what Lawrenceville has done is it's shown us a way uh, to more fully think through that model and how to expand that to other areas in the city that makes sense. To note, uh, the Lawrenceville program required all new developments with 20 units or more to set aside at least 10 percent of the units for lower income residents at affordable rates. So what is affordable? Uh, What's affordable for some might not still be affordable for others who need housing. What we are trying to do is make sure that housing is economically feasible for those that are that are on the lower end of the income spectrum. No resident should pay more than 30 percent of their income for housing costs. Councilor Deb Gross said neighborhoods such as Bloomfield and Polish Hill have expressed interest in IZ. Councilor Daniel Lavelle said he'd like to see it used in the Hill District. What would it take to try it in these or other neighborhoods in the city? So what we wanted to do in Lawrenceville is to ensure that residents were not pushed out and that residents were not displaced and lower income residents had access to this high opportunity neighborhood. And so in a neighborhood like the Hill District, where the market is a little softer or a little weaker, you're going to use inclusionary zoning as a way to thwart gentrification. We would have an opportunity to to ensure that once that market comes, that there is a metric in place that says, X number of units need to be created that are affordable for Hill District residents and to preserve that affordability for a long period of time. So the same approach that was used in Lawrenceville may not necessarily be used in the Hill District, but I think the overarching policies that need to run adjacent to inclusionary zoning could be very beneficial and very impactful. Give us an example, Diamante, of where exclusionary zoning might be a very good fit in a neighborhood, but maybe not in another. The way that you use inclusionary zoning in a stronger market, I think is going to be very different than how than how you use it in a weaker or softer market. What you don't want to do is you don't want to 
um, sort of have unintended consequences of disincentivizing market rate development, because then that provides a level of constriction of what's available in the market and the demand for those units is increasing and increasing. And we could see uh, an adverse impact on affordable housing uh, more broadly, simply because we've got so many folks in our communities now that have considerable income and they have the ability to decide where to live and how much to pay. They're driving the market, but not all of our re residents are afforded that that privilege. And so one of the things I think that we've got to start to talk about very cogently is that Pittsburgh is not only experiencing an affordable housing crisis, it's experiencing a wage crisis. You want The game there is to ensure that you're able to revitalize the neighborhood without displacing people. If more, some level of market rate development is going to happen in these neighborhoods, we have to be at the table talking about the number of affordable units that will remain, that will be there to ensure that residents still have options to remain in those neighborhoods as they become high opportunity neighborhoods. In a neighborhood like Homewood or the Hill District, at the onset, you have to you have to be there talking about and working through how to have the right mix of affordable housing so that the neighborhood doesn't change in such a way where, you know, we have a story of gentrification versus revitalization. Mayor Peduto has said he does not favor citywide inclusionary zoning, but his likely successor, Representative Ed Ganey, has indicated mm -hmm. he does would it be more efficient to have a citywide policy rather than a piecemeal approach? I think that the city of Pittsburgh needs an inclusionary zoning policy, but I think it needs one that is adaptable and flexible enough to benefit communities, not start disincentivizing development. I mean, four things that you want to target when you're talking about mandatory inclusionary zoning, uh, you want to reach a minimum quantity of affordable units. Uh, there's a targeted income range. You want to make sure that these units are going to the most housing vulnerable. Uh, you want to make sure that there's a time period in place. We don't want, you know, the unit to be affordable for five years and then folks are apocalyptically phased out. Um, and then you want it to be geographic in scope, meaning that you've got to figure out what policies work in what neighborhoods and that policy needs to be adaptable and figuring out how do we use those policies to ensure community vitality and community health overall. I think there's a way to get to it. It's just going to be an all-in strategy. It's going to take the URA, the city, Housing Authority of City of Pittsburgh. It's going to take private developers and our nonprofit community development partners to come together and figure out what works best for Pittsburgh. Diamante Walker is the Deputy Executive Director of the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Pittsburgh. Diamante, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Mental health has received greater attention during the pandemic due to isolation, significant changes in our work or schooling daily routine. The University of Pittsburgh's Graduate School of Public Health has been conducting mental health research through collaborative filmmaking. Lead researcher Dr. Sarah Bauman had set up a filmmaking research project with Pittsburgh teens just before the pandemic hit and that we went into lockdown. Sarah, welcome to The Confluence. Thank you for having me. Sarah, you've done this research project prior to the pandemic. Did your expectations change when the pandemic hit? Your goals maybe changed and you saw how it was affecting so many people, not just physically, but mentally as well. 
Absolutely. I will say that starting this project before the pandemic, uh, we had no idea what was to come. Um, we certainly were focused on mental health among Pittsburgh youth before uh, COVID had hit. Um, but as we went under lockdown, it became really clear that this project actually could go on and should go on to really further investigate mental health even during the pandemic. So certainly our research study did shift the focus on mental health uh, remained, but really the challenges with collecting data and trying to pay attention to what was really unfolding in real time in the lives of youth was really important. And so we're actually really fortunate that the youth involved in this project were able to continue many of them working on this project during the pandemic, though it was a challenge for sure. So how did it work? Uh, you gave out cameras to several teens. How many were involved? We worked with eight youth throughout the city. So what happened is we initially go through a training session. So we bring the students together, typically in person when we're able to, and do a training session, teach them how to use the equipment, brainstorm about the research question, try to gather ideas. As you can imagine, the pandemic put a little bit of a damper on that. So we were able to quickly switch over to Zoom. And luckily, all the students, they think, had already been working on Zoom with school and things like that. So it was really, um, I mean, they made it as, as seamless as possible and we were able to do some of that training on Zoom. Um, but as you can imagine, we had to think about new things that we hadn't had to think about in previous research studies with communities. Um, so the students had to get really creative inside the confines of their own homes even to create films that still um, allowed them to voice you know, their experiences. Mm -hmm. Many of the young filmmakers, as I watched the film, the compilation, uh, they expressed frustration, maybe other emotions about expectations that are heaped upon them in their lives. So what expectations did you have for them in this project? Yeah, so asking them to participate in this project, I mean, it's, it's obviously um, quite an investment in terms of time, but also vulnerability on, on their part. You know, so these youth are coming in and we're asking them to create films about mental health stressors or supports in their lives. And that can be quite a personal reflective experience. Um, but we tried to give them a number of tools to tell stories about students like them. Tell, they can tell their own personal stories if they wanted to, but really give them different ways to engage with the project. And so our expectation would be that they would come in, work with us to create a film that would address the research question and really work with us to try to better understand mental health among youth. All of these youth actually went above and beyond our expectations, especially during this challenging time of working through an academic, uh, the pandemic and trying to shift goals um, kind of in the middle of the study. So we were really pleased with how it turned out. Joining us now is one of the filmmakers, Isla Rosenthal. Isla, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. The title of your short film is Chasing Happiness. The recurring line throughout is, if my life were perfect, I'd imagine that I would always be happy. You say I would wake up happy, be filled with energy, live without expectations from others, and be unapologetically me. So who is Ayala? I mean, you could say I'm a complex person, but I think what I've found in my own life is that happiness is part of the journey and not necessarily an end goal. And happiness is something that will come and go. Um, and I think it's an unrealistic expectation for ourselves to always be happy or to reach 
ultimate happiness. So I found that accepting life as it comes um, and kind of just navigating our journey without um, being so hard on ourselves, that that's a much more effective and meaningful way to live. I've just found that really accepting what I go through and loving what I go through um, is what helps me live best. So why were you interested in participating and collaborating in this project to explore mental health? In general, I love creativity. I love expressing my feelings and emotions and what I'm dealing with. So I think this filmmaking opportunity was something totally up my alley and that I was very excited to do. I also feel like I was given a really important responsibility to kind of speak on behalf of other youth my age um, and other teens that I know. I understand that uh, a friend um, took their own life uh, in 10th grade. Did that inspire you to get involved? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess what's crazier about that is this girl who you are referring to, um, I had never met before. Uh, and what's pretty crazy is that uh, when I was in 10th grade, that was the first time that I had heard of suicide happening really to anyone, um, which just shows how I was living in a, an oblivious world. Um, and I think that that was a huge eye opener for me hearing about this fellow girl in um, the Orthodox Jewish community, which is a community that I am a part of. Uh, and I just felt like I needed to make a change. I needed to make sure that girls my age in my community felt supported and felt that there was no stigma around mental health so they could feel comfortable with who they are. Unlike some of the other uh, short films uh, that comprise this compilation, yours was filmed completely outdoors, I believe. Why? That's a good point. I never thought of that. My happy place is nature. <laughs> um, I think that's obvious when you see my film. Um, and I think it really just shows the most authentic part of myself. It's where I find myself. It's where I release tension, where I go if I'm having um, anxiety or if I'm dealing with depression. I know that I can always take a walk in the park uh, with my dog, as you probably saw in the film as well. <laughs> I was going to say, one of your co-stars is your uh, golden retriever. Uh, what's their name? His name is Timber. He's probably the main part in the film. <laughs> <laughs> he has the lead role. You say, stop imagining, start living. So is happiness the end goal or is it the journey itself? It's the journey itself for sure. Um, and I think that's exactly what that line means is I can dream of a perfect life. I can go on and on and envision just like, you know, pure bliss and happiness and connection with everybody in my, in my family and friends. Like I could envision a beautiful world. And I know that unfortunately that's just not reality. Um, and I think the idea is to just be present in the moment and live each moment without dreaming of this unattainable goal. Sarah, I understand you and your team of researchers are still pulling together the findings to publish in a peer-reviewed academic journal. But anecdotally, what have you learned from this particular project? Some of the initial things that stand out to me are that the academic stressors in the lives of youth are beyond imaginable. I mean, they are facing so much pressure and stress at uh, in the academic world, whether that's 
getting to school on time, waking up on time, or applying to college, all of that pressure is really building up in their lives. And I think almost all of the participants had mentioned that. Um, but they also talked about pressure from society, these social stressors. So whether that be from the specific communities, the cultural groups that they're a part of, their families. I mean, there are all of these kind of larger social pressures that are on youth today um, that are, you know, putting ex high, very high expectations on them. And so thinking about that is something that certainly we need to keep in mind going forward in terms of youth programming. But I would say we also tried to focus on supports in this study. So while we asked them to reflect on things that were stressful, we also thought it was really important to try to dig in deeper on what things are going well in the lives of youth, what things are really helpful. And as you referred to in Ayala's film, pets came up so often. We saw cats, we saw dogs, we heard people talking about the importance of family and pets. And so that's just one anecdotal example of how we can really try to understand what are the things that bring happiness and, and how can we try to harness those kinds of things for, for good. So I'm really also glad that we decided to focus on supports as well. 19-year-old Ayala Rosenthal is one of the filmmakers. Ayala, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Sarah Bauman is from the Pitt School of Public Health and is the lead researcher on this project. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you so much for having me. If my life were perfect, I'd imagine that I'd always be happy. It's The Confluence. I'm Kevin Gavin. Federal government guidance says employers can require employees who do in-person work to get the COVID-19 vaccine. But by doing that, bosses risk alienated or losing some staff. Keystone Crossroads' Laura Benshoff has this story of what happened when one Philadelphia doctor made the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory. The karaoke party was the final straw for Dr. Eric Berger, owner of Center City Pediatrics. Berger had already started working on a mandatory vaccine policy for his staff when two unvaccinated employees came to work sick after attending the private party in April. And immediately we tested them and sent them home. And lo and behold, we found out a day or two later that they had COVID. Berger had been trying to encourage the staff at his three clinics to get vaccinated, offering an additional day off as an incentive. But a few people had still refused. After the party, he says he was mad. I felt burned. I felt burned because we had really gone, you know, over and beyond, I felt, to the entire pandemic to try to keep people safe. And we had done a really good job. He gave all the unvaccinated employees two weeks to get a jab. Seven people ended up quitting instead. Berger says, though it was a hard time, he doesn't regret it. Belief in vaccines is too fundamental for what we do. And if somebody has that much vaccine hesitancy, uh, I'm not sure that working in a primary care pediatric office is the right place for them. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recommends everyone over the age of 12 get vaccinated for the coronavirus. The COVID-19 vaccines authorized in the U.S. built on decades of vaccine research and went through huge trials, which showed them to be overwhelmingly safe and effective, say public health experts. The federal guidance for employers following from that is pretty clear. You can require employees working in person to get vaccinated. But Alana Genderson, an employment lawyer with a focus on health and safety, says no matter what they pick, someone is likely to be unhappy. 
employers are just stuck between a rock and a hard place here. There are employees who only want to come to work if the, the rest of the employee population is vaccinated. And there are some employees who say, no matter what, I will not get vaccinated. I'd rather lose my job. Managers must try to work with people who have one of two recognized exemptions, either a medical disability or religious belief that prohibits vaccination. But Genderson says COVID-19 has become so politicized and misinformation widespread that employers are seeing many objections that fall outside of these two official categories. People think that they have this right to refuse vaccination, and that alone is powerful. Earlier this month, a federal judge dismissed a lawsuit filed by more than 100 hospital staffers in Texas who refused to get vaccinated. Some states, like Montana, have made it illegal to require vaccines. Marjorie Obad, a Philadelphia employment lawyer, says she's been counseling managers she works with against hard mandates and encouraging them to find workarounds. It's probably advisable to make sure that you're really addressing what the needs are of the company and seeing if you can accommodate people who aren't going to be vaccinated either by creating additional space or different work hours or you know how you could address that. She says that's because the mandates cause strife and because it's likely we haven't seen the last of lawsuits on this topic. But depending on the job, say in healthcare, that's not always possible. Brittany Kissling is a medical assistant at Center City Pediatrics, and she coordinates their vaccine program, tracking all the regular pediatric vaccines they give. But she also hesitated to get vaccinated earlier this year. It was more so that it was just new. I feel like I'm very pro-vaccine. I get my flu shot every year. It was just that it was something so new. Kissling is not one of the people who left. Dr. Eric Berger declined to share their names after he said his business started getting attention from anti-vaxxers. But Kissling was one of the people weighing her options. She says she talked to doctors at the practice about vaccine safety and ultimately decided she couldn't put her job on the line as a breadwinner with four kids. I could not afford to take that risk. So that was the biggest reason that I got vaccinated. But obviously, the health benefits of it, getting back to normal, some, some normalcy was a big part of it, too. As businesses push to get back to normal, more employees and their bosses are likely to face this dilemma in the coming months. Laura Benshoff, Keystone Crossroads. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Thanks to our team, Rebecca Reese, Owen Trainer, Laura Satsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.